I've got a message for you today called The Decision Dilemma. And I just, uh, I didn't actually do this in the first service, but I just really felt as we we're worshiping uh, to pray before we start this one. So let's do that. Father God, I thank you that your word is true, that we can have assurance and we can have confidence when we stand on your promises. I pray, God, that you would soften our hearts, that we would lean in. And as we listen to your word and as we sit under this teaching today, God, my prayer is that for each of us, we wouldn't get caught in the trap of thinking who else it was that needed to hear this message, but we would actually lean in for ourselves and say, God, what is it that you're saying to me today? We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, who here finds it hard making decisions? Yeah, a few people. If you can't decide, uh, you do, okay? (laughs) Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the old school movie, The Matrix, where Neo has to pick the red pill or the blue pill, and it's such a hard decision to make. It's like that crossroads, right? And we've all been there. We have these moments all the time where we have to pick left or right, but we cannot pick both. Now, I'm a bit of a troublemaker, and so I love a good theoretical question. Just chuck it out in theory. It's not real, kind of like a would you rather. But what I found over the years is that some people were far worse at answering those than others. I remember being in high school, and our our friend group was discussing a theoretical question. It was this. If you had to choose one of your parents to disappear forever, who would it be, right? (laughs) Because that's what you do when you're young. You talk about stupid things. And it was all lighthearted. It was all fun. Some people were like, oh, you know, I'd, I guess I'd get rid of my dad because I've got a little brother and he needs mum around. And someone else was like, well, mum took my Xbox off me, so she's gone. Uh, <laughs> and then my one friend, Roxanne, she chirps up. She's like, I can't decide because I love them both. We're like, yeah, we know, Roxanne. We love our parents as well. Like, no one's questioning that. But, like, it's theoretical. Like, it's in theory. It's not real. She goes, but I don't want any of them to disappear. We're like, yes, we know, Roxanne. We don't either. And I can assure you they won't based on your decision today. And no matter how hard we pressed, she would not answer it as if it was going to come true. She just couldn't decide. She was caught in the middle. It can be really hard to make decisions sometimes. I mean, if I was to ask you this, if you had to listen to only one band for the rest of your life, who would it be? Any thoughts? What did you say? We the kingdom? Our worship team, says Barbara Ann, praise God. But they have to play live every time you want to listen to them. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, a really hard decision I face far more than I wish I did. And it's this moment where I'm driving home with the KFC. And uh, after I've... <laughs> after, don't judge me. After I've uh, checked... After I've checked that I got the right stuff in the bag, I face a deep moral dilemma. Do I eat the bag fries before I get home and divvy them up fairly? Because you know there's bag fries. There's fries that are in his container. There's fries that are in hers container. And there's the fries that have just spilled out and they're in the bag and they're fair game. And I face this moral dilemma. Do I eat them all before I get home and say, Darcy, there were no bag fries, to which she would call me out, but she would never know. Um, And so I face this deep moral dilemma. And I tell you, I wish I was a better man. My wife deserves better, but I find it so hard. Does anyone else claim the bag fries? Yeah, guilty as charged. I think it's fair to say, and I think you would agree with me, that for the most part, people are good people. They want to make the right decisions. Their intentions are good. Which poses the question, is it even possible to make the right decision? Is there even such thing as right? I honestly think that one of the greatest threats to our modern society is this concept that truth is not concrete. 
that what might be right or wrong for somebody else is not right or wrong for me. It just depends on my truth. Well, the truth is you don't get a truth. We don't have a truth, but don't get me wrong, we do have a subjective preference, right? Like it might be true that your favorite worship song is Grace to Grace, or one of the ones that the team sang this morning. While it is true that my favorite song is uh, Savior King, old school uh, hill song one. Sorry? Give us a demo. God forbid. Uh, <laughs> maybe your favorite song is Father Abraham. Had me any sons in that one? I don't know. Um, that can be true for you and might can be true for me, that's fine, but we enter very dangerous territory when we take our subjective preference into the life that God has called us to live. Because there are thoughts, decisions, and actions that honor God, and then there are thoughts, actions, and decisions that don't honor God and actually turn our back on Him. In fact, in Second Kings, it's really interesting, we get this brief synopsis of all the different 21 kings across that period of time. And what's interesting is that only five of them say this of that king. They say, and they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. All the rest say, and they did what was right in their own eyes, or they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, which makes sense of Proverbs 14, 12. There is a path before each person that seems right, but ends in death. Not very encouraging, but the idea here is that human wisdom, human strategy, human ideas, ultimately anything that we could muster up all still has the same result, which is death. There was this defined right and wrong. And God blessed those that did right and lived righteously, and he didn't bless those that chose their own way above God's way. And for many of those kings, he just left them to their own evilness, and they had to be confronted by the result of their own decisions. But this is interesting in 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. It says, For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. That's challenging. He did this not because we deserve it, but because this was his plan before the beginning of time, to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And so you've not only been saved by the grace of God, but you've actually been called to live a holy life. Now that's easy to say, but how many people here know that's a whole lot harder to live out? Because you want to do the right thing. You do. You want to make decisions that honor God. You want to live the life that you've been called to. You want to, but sometimes it just doesn't happen, right? Well, there's this fascinating passage in Romans chapter 7 where Paul is trying to explain that struggle that we all face. It's that tension in the crossroads. It's when you feel pulled in two different different directions. And he explains that in the Old Testament, there was the law which actually was really helpful at highlighting to people all the different ways that they could sin. But by revealing to people all of these different ways, it sort of just exposed to them all the different options And so what happened was, as he explains it, the twisted nature of sin tried to twist the Word of God and make it seem like the Word of God was the criminal in the situation when really it was just highlighting sin, which is really the criminal here. And he gives a specific example. He says, if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't have known about coveting, which is a sin where you just desire something or someone that belongs to someone else. He says, but now that I know, all I can do is covet. And so he wants to clarify, is the law bad because it exposes it, it reveals it to me, and then I end up desiring it. Does that make the law bad? And he says, no, 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 no. The law is very good in its nature. The law just highlights to people that there was sin in their life that God never wanted for people. See, coveting is a sin, whether we realize it or not. If you're not aware of that, that doesn't make it not a sin. It's not a subjective truth, right? It's not what is true for you, but maybe not true for me. And so the law is good in that it brings the reality of sin to the surface because sin clouds our vision. 
it corrupts our heart and it creates a divide and intimacy between us and God. And Paul says, well, that's what the Lord does. It makes us feel that way, but does that mean that it's bad? And he answers his own question. He says, no, of course not. See, the problem is not with the law. It's just doing what it was meant to do. The problem is with me. He says, because I am a slave to sin. And then he says this, which I I reckon we're all going to connect with. He says, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. He goes, I I can see there's a difference between right and wrong here. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. He says, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I end up doing it anyway. Can anyone relate? It's like, I want to do my assignments, but I don't. I don't want to get stuck scrolling on Instagram, but I do. I don't want to talk to my friend that way, but I end up doing it. I want to make God central in my life, but I can't. I know what is right and wrong, but there I am time and time again making decisions that are not right in God's eyes. Have you ever felt that same level of disappointment or hopelessness that Paul faced here? See, wanting to do the right thing is the first decision, but it's not the first step. I mean, this is so evident here, right? Like wanting to do the right thing doesn't make it any easier to do the right thing. Paul's story and his anguish as he explains this is evidence of that. He says, it's because I'm a slave to sin. And he realized it's because we are a slave to the thing that we obey. We're a slave to the voice that we listen to. And yet despite that, we are saved by God and called to live a holy life. It's interesting that, at least for me anyway, I can be so quick to make the decisions where I feel like the outcome doesn't really matter. And I'm really slow to make decisions where I think the outcome is much larger. Like what you'll have for lunch is a much easier decision than how you file your taxes. How you respond to your boss is probably an easier decision than whether or not you'll take that profitable business deal, even though you know it's a bit questionable. I think the problem is that many of us make decisions and we put too much weight on the wrong consequence. We do what is right in our eyes and we don't do what is right in God's eyes. We forget that when God sent Jesus to the cross, he didn't do it so that we could just go our own merry way, but rather that we would build a life that looked like Christ. I want to suggest this morning, almost afternoon, that to live a holy life is to choose to do the right thing, even if it's not the easy thing. Because to be holy is to be set apart, to believe that our character and our integrity is far more important than worldly success, to do what is right in God's eyes like those five kings did and not what is right in our own eyes, to put more weight on the growth of our character than the growth of our bank account, to put more importance on the growth of our character than our friend circle or our Instagram influence or my comfort and entertainment. In fact, God put it like this in Matthew 16, Jesus is speaking and he says, if any of you wanna be my follower, talking to his disciples, you must give up your own way, pick up your cross and follow me. He says, if you hang on to your life, which we try to do, he says, you'll lose it. But if you give it up for my sake, there you'll find it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? He's saying, man, this is a terrible trade. If you would gain in one area of your life at the expense of your soul, at the expense of your character, at the expense of living the holy life that God has called you to. And yet for some of us, We make these tiny little trades every day. 
these seemingly small decisions that break down and wear out the very character that we're trying to build. You know, I think sometimes the problem can be that it's the way that we view sin. We think the big stuff really matters and the small stuff doesn't really matter. But big things come in small packages, don't they? And in some ways, it makes sense that we see these different. You think about it, the world presents them differently. Like the consequence, the punishment for murder is worse than stealing a lollipop. And amen that that's the case. That that should be the case. But as Christians, we praise God for His grace and we ask for forgiveness on the big mess ups. Have you noticed that? Like when you really mess up or you're really sort of embarrassed about a decision you made and you know it wasn't right, we seek God and we ask Him for forgiveness. And when we do that humbly, we can have assurance that He does forgive us. But then it comes to the small things and we're like, oh, that stuff. That stuff doesn't really matter, right? Like it's not so serious. Everyone's doing it. So it's not really sin, right? And we believe the lie of the serpent in the Garden of Eden that says, surely you won't die. See, the reality is that sin is not equal in its earthly consequence, but it's very much equal in our eternal consequence. Now, does God think murder is worse than jealousy? Of course he does, right? And yet both of them create a divide between us and God. Both of them create a gap that we can't bridge on our own. See, when you realize that you have been saved, but you've also been called to live a holy life and to imitate Christ, you realize that building your character, maintaining your integrity is one of the most important things you could do. It's far more valuable than anything else you could gain because your character literally is your Christ-likeness. And that's why Jesus said, why gain the world? Why gain all the other things but lose what's most important, your soul? You know, we should live a righteous life. Not because God's there in heaven with a lightning bolt ready to strike us down, not at all, but because every time we make a God-honoring decision, it's a building block to our character. And every time you honor God's way, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it forges a path that makes it just a little bit easier to make that same sort of decision next time. And yet every time we compromise and we make a decision that maybe is profitable, entertaining, self-serving, just because it's easier, you think you're gaining but you're really losing something because it not only dulls your intimacy with God, it makes it easier to make that same misjudgment next time. And so the downward spiral begins. Integrity has been explained like this. It's who you are when nobody's looking. It's the decisions you make when you could have got away with either one. And here's the danger. We treat the little things like they're not significant when in fact they are just as destructive to our intimacy with God as the big things. In the same way that big things come in small packages, so it's true that big doors swing on tiny little hinges. God, why can't I hear your voice? Why are the doors not opening for me? Why haven't I been entrusted with more responsibility? Why is my influence over others so limited? Because the big things come in small packages. And those tiny little decisions we make every day carry more weight than we've probably ever given them credit for. C.S. Lewis, he said it like this. He said, the terrible thing, in fact, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it is far easier to do that than what we're trying to do instead. He said, for what we're trying to do is remain what we call ourselves and keep personal happiness as the great aim in life, and yet at the same time be good. We are all trying to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping in spite of this to behave honestly, chastely, and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. The decisions we make every day, whether people are watching or not, act as building blocks in our life. 
They build a road towards Christ-likeness or they build a road away from it. It's like these tiny little hinges to which the big doors of life are dependent. This morning, for our next few moments, I just want to dive a little bit more specific into a couple of those so that we could take something practical and apply it to our life. The first one is this, faithfulness hinges on your word. Faithfulness hinges on your word. You know, one of the most notable characteristics of God is His faithfulness. Like if He said it, He meant it. If He promised it, you can have confidence that it will come to pass. He doesn't waver between yes and no. And what this does is it allows us to have confidence and assurance in who God is. It makes us easy to commit our, easier for us to commit ourselves and to vote ourselves to Christ, and it gives us confidence that He cares. And just as God is faithful, so you and I have called to be faithful. I don't know if you've heard the sayings, is you're only as good as your word. I need you to know this morning that being good on your word is one of the most foundational building blocks to your character. When Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, he's going around visiting different churches. He's got a really good reason to change his plans. But in this letter, he, he wants these people to understand the value of being someone true to your word. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 from verse 17. He says, you may be asking why I changed my plan. Do you think I make my plans carelessly? Do you think I'm like people of the world who say yes when I mean no? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you does not waver between yes and no. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you. And as God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And, and through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. Maybe you've heard it said like this. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. See, the people of faith, us in our community, should be the backbone of faithfulness in our community. Us coming true and, and, and honoring our word should be the mark of our Christ-likeness. See, commitment to your word should override a preference. It should override an alternative suggestion. It should override a better offer that props its way up. It's about doing the right thing even when it's the hard thing. What does it look like? Maybe you offer to help a friend move house this weekend. Then a few hours later, another friend says, hey, you want to come to the beach? You want to go on a road trip? Let's be honest. The beach or the road trip is way more fun. And so there you are at a crossroads. One's way more fun. One benefits you. The other, you kind of, oh, I wish I hadn't said yes so early, but you, you said you would. And so this is a crossroads moment. And what we sometimes think is, oh, I'll just, I'll just cancel on a friend. I only said yes a couple of hours ago. I'll just cancel on them and go to the beach. And you think that you've gained, but I would suggest it cost you immensely. Because what you may have gotten in personal benefit has been offset by a hit to your character. I remember in 2016, I've shared a bit of the story. I'll keep it brief, but... Darcy and I bought a house in Hamilton because the Auckland prices were too high. And in order to buy that, we had to access our KiwiSaver. And in order to access that, it had to be our primary place of residence, our main home, the place we lived more than anywhere else. We lived and worked in Auckland. And yet we signed a document and we gave our word saying that would be our primary place of residence. We will live there more than we live anywhere else. This arrangement was asking for our honesty. We drove back and forth from Hamilton many days a week. We paid the rent of our rental house in Auckland because we wanted to hold on to that. And we paid our mortgage in Hamilton at the same time. Excuse me. At the same time. It was expensive. We spent hours in the car. We had really long days. And there were so many times 
after a long day in Auckland when we knew we had a house two minutes down the road. We so desperately wanted to just go there and go to sleep, but we hopped in the car and we started the drive to Hamilton because we understood that our integrity and our word carried spiritual weight. That if we could be one to honor our word, that would be far more valuable than anything else we might gain. Can I be honest? It alarmed me and it still alarms me the amount of people, some Christians, that suggest we just cut corners. Just say you live there. Just change your mailing address and then they'll think you live there, but don't. Some people said, oh yeah, we bought out of town too, but we didn't move because it'd be real inconvenient. I was like, yeah, it is. I'm well aware of that and the inconvenience that involves <laughs> building your character and maintaining your integrity is inconvenient. In fact, following Christ is one of the most inconvenient things you could possibly do. I'm promoting it. But it's worth it. It's what God has called us to do. And now, Darcy and I, we've been entrusted with something much more valuable. Why? Because those who are faithful with small, the Bible says, would be faithful with much. Your character and your integrity and your faithfulness hinges on your word. If you say you're going to be there for someone, be there for someone. If you say you're going to pray for someone, actually pray for them. Well, that's real. I'll, yeah, I'll pray for you. Pray for them. Like, actually do it. Maybe you've committed to the dream team. Turn up. You know, maybe your boss says, hey, can you get this project done by this date? You said, it'll be done. But then life happens and it's busy and you're tired. I get that. Get the project done. Let's be people of our word that we could be trustworthy like God is trustworthy. Some, you know, maybe you say you're going to turn up to a birthday party. It doesn't matter what else comes up. It doesn't matter how good the alternative option is that presented itself later. Unless, of course, it's an emergency. Obviously, there's space for that. But let's be people of our word. If we say we're going to be there, let's be there. Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, he said this, keep your thoughts positive because your thoughts become your words. Keep your words positive because your words become your behavior. Your behavior become your habits. Your habits become your values and your values become your destiny. Big doors swinging on small hinges. Matthew chapter five, verse 33. This is Jesus. He said, you have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven because heaven is God's throne. Do not say by earth because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just a simple yes or no. Yes, I will or no, I won't. He's like, don't try to add weight to what you're saying. Your yes, I will, or my no, I won't should carry enough weight. Your word itself should be trustworthy. Faithfulness hinges on your word. Secondly, favor hinges on fairness. Favor hinges on fairness. You know, another strong part of God's character that you and I are called to imitate is that he is just and fair. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, it is always the right time to do the right thing. I don't know about you, but I want the blessing and favor of God in my life. Like I actually want heaven to light my path and bring opportunity my way. I know we all want that, but we've got to understand that God's blessing and his favor are a reward for you and I prioritizing our character. It's a reward for our faithfulness and willing to choose the right thing, even when it's the hard thing. James chapter 1 says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Love that. Didn't say it won't come, but we, we are to endure it. 
Afterwards, they'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love Him. And remember, when you're being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, nor does He tempt anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, when we allow it, we allow it to grow, it gives birth to death. Come on, God's favor in your life is a reward for your faithfulness. It's not the result of somebody else's oversight. We can get real. When someone is scanning the items at the checkout at the supermarket and they forget to scan an item, that's not God's favor in your life. That's someone who made a mistake. That's a moment we could step up, speak up, and make it right. When the plumber miscalculates the bill, that's not God's provision. That's someone making a mistake. And what is right and what is fair and what is just is that that person would get paid for their work. Every time you and I have an opportunity to make it right, we should make it right. I'm reminded of Adrian and Abby, good friends of ours. They lead our online campus. Man, they are so faithful. And they always have been. They've been so diligent to do the right thing in God's eyes all throughout their life since they became Christians. (laughs) But when they bought their new home not too long ago, The developer who found out they were Christians, he was as well, decided to knock a nice little chunk off the purchase price of their home. That wasn't a mistake. That wasn't an oversight. That was a decision, and it was the favor and the blessing of God. Come on, we live in this world, absolutely, but we're not of this world. We represent heaven, and when we try to take blessing into our own hands, we take it out of God's hands. That's real. We say, God, why aren't you blessing me? He's like, because you're trying to take control of it yourself. Do the right thing. Honor me in your decisions and I will bless you. Come on, you might be tempted by these so-called opportunities all the time. In fact, you will be, probably on a daily basis. And how we respond to those depends, sorry, determines where the building block goes. Are you building a road towards God or one away from Him? One towards Christ-likeness or one away from Him? You know, every time we make a self-serving decision, we think we're gaining something, but actually it costs you something too. The gain was at the expense of your character and your integrity. And the more you do that, the more wounded your character becomes. And a wounded character grows so much slower than a healthy and whole one. Every honorable decision is a building block to become more like Christ. Then you guys can join me. There's this concept uh, called inversely proportional. Sounds complicated. I'll give it to you simply a seesaw, right? It's this idea that as one thing goes up, at the same rate, the other side goes down. It's like as we focus on selfish ambition, Christ-like character goes down. But as we build our Christ-like character, as we honor God, it's like selfish ambition decreases. Sometimes we think, how do I build a Christ-like character and how do I also get rid of this? Just focus on building a Christ-like character and as you do, the other things will decrease. And when adding a personal expense to the business account, using an access key to a program that you know actually you should have paid for, when the restaurant worker brings up the bill and you know it's cheaper than it should be, someone's oversight is not our blessing. You know, when we say, ah, but these are just small things, you know, like everyone does it, it's part of life. Yeah, and everyone who goes forward with that suffers a hit to their character. Everyone who makes those decisions just inches just a little bit more away from the life of holiness that God has called us to live. See, we either believe that God is alive, rewards faithfulness, and sees our actions, or we don't. That's either true of God or it isn't. And if we can come to a place of faith and belief in that, 
and build up the strength to resist the selfish ambition decisions that come our way, what you find is you quickly realize that you are blessed and you do see the favor of God in your life. Romans 2 verse 6 to 8 says, He will judge everyone according to what they've done. He'll give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But He'll pour out His anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. If I could give you one real simple tip, when you find yourself at the crossroads and you're not sure which way to go, this isn't foolproof, but ask yourself this question, would I teach this to a child? Would I encourage a child to make this decision? And if your answer is no, I would never teach a child to think that way, to act that way, then it's probably the same answer for you too. You know, I love that our call to be Christ-like is not like some wishy-washy, unattainable idea where we're just left guessing what it looks like. But His grace saved us, and then He calls us to live a holy life, and He gives us Jesus to model what that looks like. Matthew 26, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane with some of His disciples. And the Bible says that He's in anguish. He knows what He's been called to do. He feels crushed. He knows that He is destined to take upon Himself the sins of the world on that cross. Your sins, my sins. And in verse 39, He says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken from me, yet I want Your will to be done, not mine. This is such a clear example of a man at a crossroads. What lay ahead for him was so hard, but he was determined to do it God's way, not his way. He says, Father, if there's any way, I'd like an easier path. But if not, I'll do the right thing, even if it's the hard thing. Jesus remained faithful to his word. He's promoted to glory to the right hand of the Father because he became justice for us. He paid the price and he fought to have the slate wiped clean. And although it wasn't fair on him, he created a sense of fairness in our judgment because he paid that price that we deserve so that we could be forgiven and made whole. The greatest decision you could ever make. And I don't know if you feel like you're at a crossroads right now where it's one way or the other. The greatest decision you could make is to invite Jesus into your life. He loves you. He died for you. He wants the best for you and he has a plan for your life. It's to commit to building a relationship with Him. That's all He's ever wanted. He saved you and He called you to live a holy life. I'm gonna pray a prayer in just a moment. I invite everyone just to close your eyes right where they are. 